My name is Matt, for those who I haven't met, so good to see you all. And uh, it takes me quite a bit to actually work into doing something that could potentially end with me being hurt. I tend to assess every aspect of the environment, if there's rocks in the water, before I go and do something. But if I feel it's okay, I'll just, I'll just go for it. And if you know Sam and James Meredith, they're usually the ones who put me in these situations. This could be something like climbing a seemingly dead tree, jumping rocks, jump rocks, going out uh, into surf bigger than I've ever been in before. But when it comes to doing something embarrassing, as long as it's not unreasonable, I tend not to think too hard on it. I'll, I'll just do it. So year 12 was the peak of that for me. For example, I went to the 12am screening of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. And getting into it, I dressed up as Professor Snape and needed some food for the movie, so I skipped through Coles, not caring what people thought about me, <laughs> and got my food. And just for the fun of it, to turn some uh, people's head in the public, some mates and myself, uh, we redesigned surf attire. So we went out in wigs and some nice vests and things, so that was great fun. We got some good attention. When it came to things like that, I didn't really fear what people thought of me. I didn't think, no, I can't do this because people are just going to think I'm weird or something along those lines. But when I'm a, as a Christian, when it comes to sharing what I believe, that I believe that Jesus was real and he died on the cross to save me from my sin, sometimes I fear what my friends will think of me. So sometimes I just I don't bring it up. And yeah, it's pretty sad to think in those moments that you can't seem to share something that you've devoted your life to because you're afraid of what other people might think. We actually see a bit of that in this passage that we just had read out. You might have seen it yet, but there are some people who oppose Jesus in this passage, who reject who Jesus is because they're afraid of what people might think of them. What I want to encourage you all to do tonight, and it's going to sound a bit strange at first, but I want to encourage you to do what you can't. And as we go through the passage, I'm going to show you why. And I'm just going to quickly pray for that first. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, thank you that we've got this opportunity to come here tonight and uh, look into your word. Pray that you help us to concentrate um, and help us to understand the meanings of this passage and uh, to help us to apply it to our lives and um, that that will bring you glory. Amen. So in Mark, we're out to Jesus has come to Jerusalem and uh, he's seen that the temple hasn't been used for what it should be used for. So naturally, he started flipping tables and driving people out of the temple. This got a bit of attention. The chief priests, the teachers uh, of the law and the elders noticed what Jesus had been up to. So they came up to question him. And it's important to note that they're not heaps fussed about Jesus. So now let's take a look at tonight's passage, which is a parable, which is a story that uh, Jesus told with a real meaning behind it. So in verse 1, we see that a guy, a landowner, plants a vineyard and he, uh, he rents it out to some farmers and he goes and lives somewhere else. It's pretty standard back in those days that the landowner would take some of the harvest as payment for renting their land to someone. So the landowner, after a while, on a few occasions, sends out a few of his servants to go and see how the vineyard's doing. Have a look at um, verses 2 to 4. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, these are the farmers, to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away and empty-handed. Then he sent, other serv- uh, sent another servant to them, 
they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. Each time, the landowner's servants have been been stoned or killed. The tenants didn't want them there, and they just wanted the whole the whole uh, vineyard for themselves. Imagine that. This guy, these guys are brutal. The landowner ha, uh, has rented out his land, and in return, he gets his servants beat up uh, for collecting what is rightfully his. It kind of reminds me a little bit of home. A few mates have moved into my house. Uh, who, some of them you might know. Will McDonald, Charlie Pinsack, and Barrel. <laughs> now, downstairs is the entertainment area, and we've got like a 72-inch uh, TV, an Xbox, Apple TV, all that fun stuff. And seeing that these guys are paying rent, I figure, like, yeah, they can, they can use it. But here's the thing. Barrel is always there. And he tells everyone that it's his, and he basically makes up the rules. And if I'm ever using it and he walks in and says I'm uh, using it, there's this piercing, this lethal look that he gives. And it's scary. He's taken full ownership of the entertainment area. Now, what these tenants are doing to the servants is so much worse. But the landowner wants what is rightfully his. So he thinks to himself, they mistreated my messengers. But surely they're not going to mistreat my son. But have a look at what happens in verse 7 to 8. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They killed the landowner's son. Pretty hectic. They did that because the law of that time said that if there was no heir to the, to the land, the, the ownership passes to the current possessors uh, when the landowner dies. And that's why they killed the son. They thought that they would end up with the vineyard for themselves. But they forgot a little detail. The landowner is still alive. And so what, what's he going to do about it? Come check out verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The landowners will come, kill the current tenants, and get new farmers. I don't think that's the inheritance they were expecting. We'll come back to the rest of the passage soon, but there's something that you need to understand about this story. It isn't just a story about some pretty terrible farmers. It's pretty much a super summary of the Bible. Have a think about the characters in the parable. And I didn't work this out by magic or anything. It's actually pretty obvious if you've been looking into Mark with us or if you read the Bible yourself. So let me show you who they're meant to be. The landowner is God. The vineyard is Israel, God's chosen people. The tenants are the religious leaders, the people who are hating on Jesus. The servants are God's prophets, the messengers of God. The landowner's son is God's son, Jesus. And the new farmers are the Gentiles, us, everyone. Hopefully you can see now that it's more of a story on how God created Israel, his chosen people, and the leaders put in charge of Israel, like their position of power. So they stoned, dishonored, and killed other people that God sent to teach them and guide them to God. God then sent Jesus, his son, and though they haven't killed Jesus yet in this part of the Bible, they're conspiring to kill him, but they haven't had the chance. 
if you haven't realized, Jesus is addressing this parable to the tenants. The religious leaders that, talk, that Jesus is talking to, they are the tenants in the parable. And they're wanting to kill Jesus for the same reason that the tenants killed the landowner, the landowner's son. Sorry. Uh, they're worried that they will lose their inheritance because of Jesus. And like the farmers, they're missing the crucial details. They don't see that if they reject Jesus, their inheritance of being in, uh, in heaven will go. So we're back at the end of the parable now, and Jesus is talking directly to the chief priests, the teachers, and the elders now. So um, have a look at verse 10 to 11. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now to understand this first, understand that the cornerstone is the foundation of something. So take a look at our giant Jenga set. Ta-da. Okay. So typically with the game of Jenga, you take something from the middle, you take one of the blocks, you put it on top, and eventually it sort of gets a bit unstable and it falls, and then you lose. But this is all granted that it's got a good foundation at the bottom. So what happens if we take out the cornerstone? It crumbles for a long time. <laughs> Without a cornerstone, the rest of the building, the Jenga set, whatever it is, won't really work. It's just going to crumble. And when it comes to salvation and a relationship with God, this is what Jesus is the cornerstone of. Without him, no one has a chance of coming to God and being saved from their sin and uh, saved from eternal death. This is exactly what Jesus is saying they have done and that they're going to do. They're going to reject him completely and have him killed. The religious leaders were pretty quick to pick up that Jesus was directing this parable at them. He made it obvious to them through the parable that if they reject him as their king, they're going to be left out of the kingdom of God. Pretty heavy thing to say to someone, but it's the truth. However, to these religious leaders, this was something that they saw fit to now from here conspire against Jesus and kill him, just as Jesus said in the parable they would do. But first, they need to arrest him. Check out verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So did they arrest him? Did they kill him? No. Go back to the uh, verse. They were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. (laughs) Considering that Jesus has just come to the temple and has driven out a bunch of people for doing the wrong thing, rightfully, and flipping tables and then telling the religious leaders, if you continue down this path, you're not going to get into the kingdom of God? I feel this is a bit of an anticlimax. The key thing, though, is that's what they did. These people didn't agree with Jesus, but they didn't argue or arrest him either. And why's that? Because like the farmers in the parable, like the tenants in the parable... They didn't want to lose their position of power over the people. They had a far greater fear of people than God throwing them away from the kingdom and throwing them into an eternal death. And that's the passage. So, how does that encourage you to do what you can't? I think sometimes, like the religious leaders, we do things to please the people around us rather than doing what's good for us. So how can that change 
How can, how can we change that? Fear God before you fear people. When I talk to people in youth, church, or sometimes think of myself, I can't is a phrase that is thrown around a little. I can't talk to my friends about Jesus because they'll think I'm weird. I can't understand why anyone would believe this hogwash. Quote me, 2009. In these circumstances, like the religious leaders, people are fearing people more than they're fearing God. Fearing what people might think or do. Or, like I was, maybe a bit afraid of what someone might say if you ask questions, find out more about what the Bible says. To explain, fearing God isn't being terrified of him and uh, running away. It's understanding his power and having respect and awe of his power. Not so much when you're outside, but when you're inside watching a lightning storm from a window. Do you feel that respectful fear of its power? It seems there's a calm bit of wind, a bit of cloud, and then there's a big flash and a massive crack, and then rumbling that just goes everywhere. It vibrates through the house. In those moments, I'm not terrified and running for cover and thinking that I need to find a survival kit or something like that. I'm in awe of of its power and respect. I'm in awe of its power and I respect it. (laughs) So I stay under the protection of my house. I respect and am in awe of God's power and I believe in it. So I stay under the protection of Jesus, which he has provided. That is why you should be telling people about Jesus and committing your faith to him, no matter what people think or say. You could be someone who has no problem sharing your faith and belief in Jesus and that's awesome, keep doing that. It could be things like conversations with people about Jesus and fearing that you're going to say the wrong thing. Have faith that God will provide the words for you and he'll guide you and no matter how the conversation goes, he's still going to use that conversation. Or as small as when your friend asks, what's happening this weekend? If you're going to youth or church, let them know that that's what you're doing. They won't buy it. Maybe a little nibble, but they're not going to buy it. When I was at school and I answered that question mentioning youth or church, there was quite a few times that they actually initiated the conversations about Christianity. If you believe that God is real and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you're worried about what your friends might think more than God, (laughs) worried that your family might think you're weird and perhaps you might think people are going to think that you're stupid because you become a Christian. It means that you're humbly... You're humbly admitting that you were wrong before. And trust me, I know that that's hard. Those last two things were especially hard for me when I became a Christian. But being a Christian is so much more worth it than worrying about what other people are going to say and think. These are thoughts that you might be having, and they might cause you to think, I can't be a Christian right now, but maybe down the track a bit. Thinking back to sitting inside watching a powerful storm blowing past, it's a bit like going outside, going for a run, going to the beach, having a surf. You know and respect the storm, and you know it's there and that it's powerful, but assuring yourself there's hardly a chance that you're going to get struck by lightning. The thing is that there is a chance, though. You don't know when or where, but there is a chance. If you're out in a storm, you should be a lot more afraid of the per- than the person that's watching from a window. I would hate to be struck by lightning, but it would be so much worse than to actually face God's wrath. How are you to know that you're going to live till 80? Fear God more than man and put your faith in Jesus 
So you don't need to face the wrath of God. Similarly, some of you might be Christians, but you're questioning it because you're getting teased at school or your family might make a bit of fun, at, um, have a bit of fun at your expense. This is likely to happen, and Jesus actually does tell us that this will happen to Christians. Some of you might be teased for choosing youth over going to a party, and at your age, you might have friends that are teasing you for being a virgin. Maybe not now, but at 23, I know that my old school friends think it's a bit weird. If you're in that boat, it is hard, but don't fear their words or their thoughts more than God. If the Bible tells us to stick with it, keep keeping thing, telling us to keep things like sex for marriage, if we're following those things, think what God thinks. Seek God. Don't worry about what people are going to say. Don't seek their approval. When I was an atheist, I actively rejected Jesus. Thinking about that powerful storm again, it was basically standing out in an open field with a metal pole saying, it's a bright, sunshiny day. There was a time, though, that I realized that I didn't know much about Christianity, the thing that I hated and pushed against. So I decided to ask a few questions and educate myself on it. So I came to youth. I asked questions and talked to leaders and other Christian youth for a large portion of the hangout time for a good two months. And then I found that I agreed. And seven years ago, I first admitted that I believe that there's a God and that Jesus died for my sins. I think there's some people here tonight that might be like how I was, actively rejecting Jesus, and there might be people not ready to commit to Christianity, or you mightn't have any idea about it, and that's cool, it's awesome that you're here, you're in the right place to learn stuff about it, and I'd love to encourage you not to just ask one or two questions, but to commit time over the next few weeks, at least, to understanding more about this. Tonight we've seen how the religious leaders feared people, and the stability of their position of power more than they feared God and where that would lead them. I'll be the first to admit it is super, it's way easier to say than it is to do. But I encourage you, rather than just say it's too hard or say that you can't, try it. Put every effort in you can, pray, talk to people and ask questions. If you've accepted Jesus as the cornerstone, that's awesome. Start small and work your, uh, work your way up as you grow to show that this is the truth for you. And on the other hand, we've read that Jesus is the cornerstone and our only way to salvation. Are you going to continue rejecting that? Or will you take up the challenge of investing time in what the Bible says so that you can make a good, informed decision on what you believe? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you that through Jesus, the cornerstone, we can have a relationship with you. I pray you help us to grasp that properly and to help us fear you more than people. I pray you help us to answer uh, questions we ask truthfully and ask the questions we have so we might bring you glory. Amen.